Today's sermon comes from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 16. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with the irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, Godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the savior of all, all people, especially those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. David Brooks is a columnist for the New York Times, and he wrote a very thought-provoking article on character. He said, about once a month, I run across a person who radiates an inner light. These people can be in any walk of life. They seem deeply good. They listen well. They make you feel funny and valued. You often catch them looking after other people. And as they do so, their laugh is musical. And their manner is infused with gratitude. They are not thinking about what wonderful work they are doing. They are not thinking about themselves at all. He describes two sets of virtues, what he calls resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Resume virtues are the skills you bring to the marketplace. Eulogy virtues are the ones that are talked about at your funeral. And then he says this, we all know that the eulogy virtues are more important than the resume ones, but our culture and our educational systems spend more time teaching the skills and strategies you need for career success than the qualities you need to radiate that sort of inner light. Many of us are clearer on how to build an external career than on how to build inner character. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul writes about godliness. He's writing about character. When he writes in verse 12, let no one despise you for your youth, speaking to Timothy, who is the pastor of this church in Ephesus, but set the believers an example in speech in conduct, in love, in faith, 
in purity, he's speaking about godliness or character. A church in Ephesus that had become fractured by false teaching that was really on the path towards godlessness is hearing from Paul through Timothy what marks the path towards godliness. And so this is really a part two from last week. We're asking the same question, what marks the path to godliness and or to character? First, right content, right content. Now, what do I mean by that? We live in an information age. And by that, we live in a world where information is uh, quickly and easily disseminated. It's widely available in our day of the smartphone and social media and internet. There is a vast amount of information for you to consume. And you and I, week to week, consume vast amount of content, whether we realize it or not. We are inundated with content and information, and especially because it's at our fingertips. Now, in the first century, they didn't have smartphones, they didn't have social media, they didn't have this technology, but they had just as much content that was floating out there, that was available for consumption. And that's what Paul speaks about in verse seven. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Now, what does that mean? That's content that this church was consuming. What was it? Well, the NIV translates it old wives' tales. The history of the Old Testament, the law of God that was being taught in this church, was being overlaid with ridiculous legends. It was being overlaid with genealogies that were given absurd symbolism such that what was being taught and consumed was incredibly unhealthy and incredibly toxic to those that were consuming it. Now, what do silly myths, irreverent silly myths look like today? Let me give you a few thoughts. Maybe conspiracy theories. Which, since the pandemic hit two and a half years ago, well, a little over two years ago, Uh, there is a smorgasbord of conspiracy theories that you can go read and enjoy for delicious consumption, okay? And the conspiracy theories are all over the map, depending on which news outlet you choose, which blog you choose. Conspiracy theories, uh, urban legends, endless issue-oriented, which are oftentimes hostile, blogs and websites. There's all kinds of content that is not healthy, kind of like junk food or a a fast food diet. I like the number seven meal at McDonald's. It's the two cheeseburgers meal. And all of you clean and healthy eaters resist the urge to judge me right now. But the burger, the fries, it tastes so good. It's not good for me, I know that. Which is why it's not a regular part of my diet. It's fast food. Some of you that are old enough, uh, and I think there was a documentary, so maybe you've seen it, but back in the early 2000s, a man conducted an experiment 
and he ate three, uh, three meals a day from McDonald's, breakfast, lunch, and dinner for 30 straight days. At the end of those 30 days, he was not a healthy man. That's an understatement. I and mean, he was physically sick, even mentally, psychologically, it messed him up of consuming this fast food, just junk food diet for 30 straight days. Conspiracy theories, polemical, issue-centered, hostile blogs, urban legend, all of this amounts to kind of junk food content. It's not healthy, so it begs the question, well, then what is the healthy content to be consumed? Verse 13, until I come, devote yourselves to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Scripture, God's Word, that's the healthy content. Why? Verse 6, being trained in the words, or that can read truths, of the faith. Scripture is truth. God's word is the only absolute truth that we have in this world. Now, I said it last week. The human heart hates a vacuum, right? The human heart hates emptiness. It demands content. The sinful human heart craves junk food content, right? Craves the juicy gossip, craves the conspiracy theory, craves the sensational news. We, our sinful hearts crave that kind of junk food content, but our hearts need truth. And just like if you consume junk food and fast food as a regular diet, your arteries will clog and your heart will fail, So too, when you consume as a regular diet unhealthy content, it leads to a slow spiritual death. The people at the beginning of chapter four that Paul notes in this church that departed from the faith, when you read the whole letter, I don't think these were people that set out to depart from the faith. From reading it, you get the sense that they started to consume this unhealthy content. They started to consume this, these silly myths that were irreverent. And as they consumed more and more of it and less and less of God's word, then they began to move away from God, which ultimately resulted in them departing from the faith. What content do you regularly consume? What is, your, what is in the steady diet of your consumption? Is it a blog? Is it a certain news outlet? Is it a certain website? Where does God's word fall in your content consumption? Now, what I'm not suggesting is that you only read scripture, stick your head in the sand, and never read anything else and become absolutely irrelevant in our world. No, not at all. Here's the question, what is your standard of truth against which you measure everything else that you read? 
if your consumption of unhealthy content increases and, and increases and your consumption of God's word decreases, and let me just say, even in the unhealthy content, uh, even good Christian content outside of God's word is written by an author. And every author is sinful and biased and has a slant. So you even have to read Christian content with a critical eye. But if your unhealthy content or your content outside God's word increases and your, and your consumption of God's word decreases, what happens is, and you may not do this consciously, but suddenly that outside content starts to become the standard by which you measure everything else and potentially even God's word. And so when you take an honest look at your content consumption, is God's word a major part of your diet? That's the question. Is God's word a major part of your diet? What marks the path to godliness? First, right content. Second, right discipline. Right discipline. Verse seven. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. Now, the word for train here in the Greek, which is the original language of the New Testament, is a word from which we derive the English word gym or gymnasium. And so you go to the gym to train your body to get in shape, right? You train your body in the face of competition. What do I mean by that? Well, you train your body because there are forces in you, outside of you, that are competing for the health of your body. What are these, what's some of this competition? Old age? I'm starting to raise my hand on that. Slowly, not all the way up, but I'm starting to raise my hand on that. Old age, right? It, it keeps you from doing what you used to be able to do. Your body slows down, so you train, you work out to try to be productive and healthy for as long as you can that God gives you on earth. Or the competition may be nerves. In the athletic world, nerves that keep you from performing like you would want to perform. Uh, professional golfers train with their swing for muscle memory so that when the pressure is on in a tournament and the nerves are high, right, their swing stays intact under pressure. They train for that. Right? Or maybe the competition is just purely another team right, or another person, and so you're, you're training to outperform the other. When it comes to spiritual training, training yourself for godliness, the same is true. You are training yourself for godliness in the face of competition. There are all kinds of things, both outside of you and inside of you, that are competing for your heart's allegiance. So outside of you, there is false doctrine, there is false teaching, there's the cultural pressures of the day, of the moment that are competing for the allegiance of your heart trying to draw you away from God. Inside of you, you have your own sin that's seeking to master you, 
competing for the allegiance of your heart to draw you away from God. So ultimately, all of this is seeking to take you down a path to godlessness, not godliness. So what does training yourself for godliness actually look like? What does the training or the discipline actually look like? Verse 15, practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching Persist in this. Three very strong verbs that Paul uses here. Practice, immerse, or immerse yourself, and persist. The word practice can also mean cultivate. In the sense of agriculture, you would cultivate soil to plant a seed in it. The phrase immerse yourself in the original language is actually the verb to be. So it literally reads, be in them, which raises the spiritual disciplines beyond just behavior, what you do to identity, who you are. Be, be in God's word, plant yourself in God's word, cultivate the soil of your heart so it plants in you and then persist. which means to remain or to continue. When the competition presses in, when the storms come. Now, you throw all these three verbs together and you have a very strong agricultural metaphor. Cultivate the soil, prepare the soil for the seed to be immersed or planted in the soil so that it can root and withstand the storms. So it is with spiritual training. Cultivate your heart. Cultivate your heart for God's word to immerse and plant in it. And plant God's word into your heart. Cultivate, immerse your heart in God's word. Persist, remain when the storms of life hit. It's interesting, when we talk about storms of life, we often think of it in kind of the major categories, like a hurricane. It's like talking about a hurricane hitting Jacksonville. Every time about this, this time of year, we all say, okay, it's hurricane season, get ready. And a hurricane rarely hits Jacksonville, which is wonderful. But it rarely hits because we're tucked away. The storms of life are not the major hurricanes. The storms of life are what you've seen happen over the past month. Every afternoon, what happens? It's thunderstorms popping up here and there. That's, that's the adversity, the trials, the storms of life. Cultivate your heart. Immerse God's word in it, you in it. Persist, remain when the storms hit. I love science writer Hope Jaren shares this very interesting fact, quote, about a a plant, about a tiny seed and its need to root for the plant to survive. Listen to what she says. No risk is more terrifying than that taken by the first root. A lucky root will eventually find water, but its first job is to anchor. Once the first root is extended, the plant will never again enjoy any hope of relocating to a place less cold, less dry, less dangerous. Indeed, it will face frost, drought, and greedy jaws without any possibility of flight. And then she goes on to say this about a tree's roots. 
They can swell and split bedrock and move gallons of water daily for years much more efficiently than any pump yet invented by man. And if the root takes root, the plant becomes almost indestructible. She says, tear apart everything above ground. Everything. And most plants can still grow rebelliously back from just one intact root. More than once, more than twice. Training yourself for godliness, discipline, is about rooting. It's about rooting yourself deeply in God's word so that you can withstand the challenges in a very broken world and in very broken lives. So what, what are the healthy disciplines then for rooting into God's word? What are the healthy disciplines? I, I like to think of it as a, a three-legged stool. And you know how a three-legged stool works. You take away one leg and what happens? It totters, it tips, it starts to fall over. The three legs or the three disciplines of rooting yourself in God's word are corporate, communal, and personal discipline. The corporate discipline is what you're doing right now. You're, set, you're sitting underneath the reading of God's word, the teaching of God's word, that's important. The communal discipline, that's when you gather with others around God's word. That's what our community groups are. Or that's what Bible studies are, right? Gathering around God's word. And then the personal discipline is you spending time alone by yourself in God's word. If all three of those disciplines are intact and part of your rhythm in life, then you will be well-rooted in God's word. What marks the path to godliness. It's right content, it's right discipline. And then this third one is critical. Right motivation. In other words, why? You have to answer the question, why do you establish healthy disciplines around God's word? Why do you root yourself in God's word. What's the motivation? The reason why this is critical is that when we talk about spiritual disciplines, oftentimes it can fall into the category of legalism. And what I mean by legalism is I read my Bible to earn favor with God, or I read my Bible to score points with God in some way. That's not the why behind spiritual discipline. That's not the why. That's not the motivation. So what is the motivation? Verse eight. Godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Verse 10, for to this end, that, there it is, that's motivation. This is the why. For to this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the savior of all people, especially of those who believe. The motivation for spiritual discipline, for spiritual training is not to get something you don't have. 
but to enjoy something you already have by grace through faith. The motivation for spiritual discipline is not to get salvation. It's to enjoy the salvation that you already have by grace through faith. And that's a salvation that's enjoyed in the both now and not yet. Salvation is a now, salvation's also a not yet. And spiritual discipline keeps us attached to the now and not yet. This is what Paul's talking about in verse eight, when he says godliness holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Godliness holds value for the now and for the not yet, meaning something you haven't experienced yet. So you enjoy salvation now, you will enjoy it more fully when Jesus returns. There's a now and a not yet. Our hope is set on the living, living God, the eternal God. Now, this is hard for us to get our hands around because we're a very here and now people, right? Naturally, we're a very here and now oriented people, and we are a very immediate gratification oriented people. I will do something if there's an immediate benefit. So passages in the scriptures, like Psalm 126.5 that says, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. We struggle with that. We struggle with the sowing and the reaping metaphor. It's actually throughout the entire scriptures because sowing and reaping is not immediate gratification, right? You sow and sometime in the future, you reap. You sow in the here and now, but sometime in the future, you reap. Sowing and reaping. We sow in tears, one day we will reap with shouts of joy. When Paul says, for to this end, we toil and strive, the word strive means to suffer reproach. So he's saying, to this end, life now, life to come, the now but not yet, this bigger eternal perspective, to this end, we toil, we agonize, we strive, with an eye, with an eye set on the future. With an eye set on the life to come. Spiritual discipline, specifically the discipline of engaging God's word, keeps us attached to the now, but it also keeps us attached to the not yet, to the life that's coming when Jesus returns Imagine a young couple that is engaged by virtue of an arranged marriage. The father chose a bride for his son, but this son, this young man and this young woman live very far apart and they've never seen each other. After the father chooses the bride for his son, the son decides to write a letter to this young woman. The woman receives it, reads the letter, and then writes a letter back to him. And they begin this process of writing letters back and forth to get to know each other. 
And as they write more and more letters back and forth, as they communicate, their love deepens and their relationship grows. But they've never seen each other. They haven't even heard each other's voice. But as the days go on, this letter writing gets harder and harder because they have jobs. They have friends. They have a life full of events and activities. They're busy. But they realize that writing these letters is an investment. It's an investment in the future of their relationship because they know one day they're going to stand face to face and be happily married. And so they continue to invest in the relationship by writing these letters, knowing that these letters are bearing fruit for the day they stand face to face. Albeit imperfect, this paints a picture of the motivation behind the spiritual discipline of engaging in God's word. God the Father has chosen a bride for his son, Jesus Christ. That bride is called the church. And the son, Jesus, has written a letter to his bride. It's God's word. And it's a letter full of who he is and his love for his bride, the church. And the bride reads the letter and responds in prayer. Maybe verbal prayer, silent prayer, maybe written prayer in the form of a journal, but the bride responds. That's why you engage in God's word. Because one day, it's called the marriage supper of the lamb in Revelation. One day you're gonna stand face to face with Jesus and you will be in relationship with him for eternity responding to his letter, reading it and responding to it, is investing in a relationship that you're going to enjoy for eternity. You enjoy now by faith, you will enjoy by sight for eternity. And just like I said in that analogy, sometimes life gets busy. We've got jobs, we've got friends, we've got events, we've got activities, life gets busy. Sometimes it's hard to sit down and read the letter and respond, but we do it. We discipline ourselves to do it because we understand the investment it's making into the relationship that we're going to enjoy for eternity with Christ. And as the love deepens and as the relationship grows, the bride, the church becomes more like the groom, more like the groom in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. What is your relationship to God's word? What is your relationship to God's word? It is the path to truth in a culture that's being tossed back and forth. It is the path to godliness in a world that has lost sight of character. But all that's true because it is the path to Jesus. the one to whose image you're being conformed, the one who loves you deeply and the one you're gonna see face to face sometime soon in the near future. 
Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you've chosen a bride for your son. You've chosen a bride called the church that all those who trust Christ are a part of. Father, we thank you for your word that is content full of love, full of hope, full of security for your children here in this broken world. Oh, Father, we pray that you would engage us deeply in your word. Not because we're trying to earn something, not because we're trying to be uh, a perfect Christian so others can see, but that you would engage us in your word because we long for our relationship with your son Jesus to grow, for our love to deepen. Father, would our motivation to open your word be born out of love, born out of gratitude? And would you change us and would you transform us as you promise you are doing through your spirit as we engage your word. Father, thank you for loving us first and that we get the privilege of responding to your love daily. And would we respond now by singing to you the truth about who you are, who we are, and with an eye towards the life to come that you promise all those we trust in Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.